Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Dr. Dean Ornish, a pioneer in the field of lifestyle medicine and a renowned expert in promoting overall health and well-being. He's a New York Times best-selling author, captivating speaker, and a sought-after expert who has collaborated with some of the world's most prestigious medical institutions. We'll discuss when he met Swami Sachinananda at his lowest point he was contemplating suicide at the age of 19 and the profound influence he had on his life's work. Heavily influenced by Swami Sachinananda's holistic teachings, Dr. Ornish has demonstrated the incredible power of lifestyle choices in preventing and even reversing chronic disease states. His groundbreaking research has garnered international acclaim and his Ornish Lifestyle Medicine program has transformed tens and thousands of lives. I hope you're inspired by our conversation that transcends boundaries, brings ancient wisdom with modern science, and reminds us all of the limitless power within ourselves for health, happiness, and spiritual growth. I hope you enjoy. Dean, as usual, it's uh, great to uh, see you again. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I know you have a spiritual side yourself with your relationship with Swami Sachananda. Is that the correct pronunciation? Close, Sachidananda. Uh -huh. Sachidananda. Uh, anyway, I was just uh, in Hyderabad at the uh, Kanha, um, let's see, Shanti Vanam uh, Ashram, which is run by a fellow named Daji. And uh, it was a, a fun experience. So I spent five days there. But the uh, Daji his, uh, is the name of their uh, spiritual leader. But he's, uh, he's become a friend of mine, but a, a very fascinating uh, individual. So uh, in some ways, that's what we're talking about is this intersection, I think, between uh, health, both physical and mental, as well as uh, spirituality combined with uh, the other aspects which we need, which are exercise and sleep, of course. And um, some people may not know, and I know you and I have talked about it previously, but how do you see the intersection of uh, spirituality and uh, and physical health? Well, that's a pretty big question. Um, I got interested in, well, I guess, one to make it very personal, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it were not for the intersection between spirituality and health, because I came about as close to committing suicide when I was 19 as one can do without actually doing it, and would have, except uh, it's a longer story than we probably have time for here. I wrote about it in a couple of my books, but the short version is I was able to take all the meaning out of my life. You know, I was I was a freshman in college at 19 years old, and you know, who cares? So what? Big deal. Nothing matters. Why bother? And I was also convinced that I was stupid, and somehow I'd managed to fool people that I was not. And now that I was in a college with a bunch of really smart kids, it was just a matter of time before they figured out what a mistake they'd made in letting me in. And so I would have, um, I thought to myself, well, why don't I just kill myself? You know, dead people look like they're happy. And, and I was not, I could barely even stop pacing. So I was um, all set to do that. And I got such a bad case of infectious mononucleosis, my first understanding of how the mind affects the body. 
uh, that I literally couldn't get out of bed. And my parents came down and saw what a wreck I was and brought me home to their home in Dallas. And my plan was to get well enough to, and strong enough to kill myself, as crazy as that sounds. And that was in January of 1972, a long time ago. My older sister had been studying yoga with Swami Satchidananda, who's an ecumenical spiritual teacher uh, who came to this country in 1966. Peter Max, the artist, brought him here. And uh, he, uh, they decided that it really helped my sister. So when he was in Dallas as part of a, a speaking tour, they decided they would have a cocktail party for him, which was a little strange in Dallas in 1973 to have a Swami there, as you can imagine. And there's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and that was certainly true for me. So in walks this um, kind of central castings idea of what a Swami should look like, you know, with a long white beard and orange saffron robes and the whole thing. And he gave a lecture in our living room, and he started out by saying that nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, which is why I was ready to do myself in, except he looked like he was very happy and even glowing. So I, I thought, well, what am I missing here? And he went on to say what what probably sounds like a new age cliche, but it turned my life around, which is that while nothing can bring lasting happiness, that he said, we have that already. And that not being mindful of that, we end up running after all these things that we think are going to make us happy and not recognizing that the, the, that setting up that process of believing that our happiness and our health and our well-being come from outside us is really where suffering begins. And he said that the goal of all spiritual practices, once you get past the you know, the rituals that people fight and kill each other over, especially these days, uh, is um, to quiet down our mind and body enough to experience that inner sense of peace and joy and well-being that's always there until we disturb it. And so much of our culture, and particularly the whole advertising industry, teaches us that, incorrectly, that if only, you know, you have to get your happiness, your health, your well-being from outside of yourself. And so once you set up that view of the world, if only I had more whatever it is I think I need to be happy and healthy, usually more money, more power, more sex, more beauty, more accomplishment, more whatever. It takes different forms. But if only I had blank, then I'd be happy, he said, once you set up that view of the world. However, it turns out you're likely to suffer because until you get whatever that is, you're going to be really stressed. And we know that stress comes not just from what we do, but more importantly, how we react to what we do. And so if we think that, oh, I've got to get this to be happy and healthy, so people will love me, so I won't feel so lonely and isolated, then the stakes go way up, the stresses go way up. So until you get it, you're really stressed. If somebody else gets it and you don't, then you're even more stressed. And it reconfirms this kind of zero-sum game view of the world. The more you get, the less there is for me, and you better get it while you can. If you don't get it, you feel stressed. And even if you do get it, there's this moment of like, ah, I got it, now I'm happy, and now people will love me. Um, but then it doesn't last. It's, in, it's almost in, inevitably followed by either now what? It's never enough. A patient years later um, said, you know, I can't even uh, enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed. I'm already looking over the next one. Or if it's not now what? It's often so what? Big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. And another patient said, you know, the letdown that comes from accomplishing a goal and getting something that I thought was going to make me happy, and it did for a little while, but it didn't last, was so... Uh, sad that I made sure I've got 10 projects going at the same time so I can immediately go, well, this didn't do it, but maybe that will. And so the cycle continues. And so he said that whatever spiritual practice you do, ultimately, when you quiet down your mind and body, it doesn't bring you a sense of, of well-being. It's not just about managing stress. You know, the ancient, you know, swamis and rabbis and priests and monks and nuns and whatever didn't develop these techniques to 
uh, manage stress better. They're really powerful tools for transformation. And the transformation is that when we quiet down our mind enough, it gives us that direct experience of inner peace and well-being. And to realize that it wasn't that the, the meditation or whatever practice we were doing brought us that sense of peace, but rather it was always there until we disturb it. And so the question then shifts from how can I get what I think I need to be happy and healthy and lovable to how can I stop disturbing the inner peace that's already there? And that's a may sound like, you know, semantics and parsing words, but the implications are quite profound because if it's out there, then everybody who has what I think I need, in my case, it was guys, if only I can do well in organic chemistry so I can get into medical school, so then I can be happy. Uh, everyone outside has power over you, you know. Um, but if it's from within me, not to blame myself, but to empower myself, if the question is, what am I doing to disturb my own inner sense of peace and well-being? Well, that's something I can do something about. And so um, that's what he, he taught. And ultimately, if you take meditation deep enough, it gives you that non-dual experience that on one level, we're separate. You know, you're you and I'm me and we can enjoy having this dialogue. But on another level, we're all interconnected. You know, we're different. So the Swami used to use the analogy of going into an old style movie theater with a, a movie projector. The light goes through the movie film and it projects on the stage and you get all these names and forms and dramas, but you can get lost to them and suffer a lot if you don't remember you're just in a movie theater. And there's that same light is under is really behind all of these different names and forms and dramas. And that kind of double vision, you know, that we can hold both at the same time uh, is really at the root of compassion and altruism and and forgiveness and, you know, all those spiritual truths that Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. You know, again, once you get past the rituals that people fight over. Uh, and why is that? Because that's ultimately what frees us from suffering and gives us, I mean, if, 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 if just you, if you're you, me in another form, then compassion just flows naturally from that. So does forgiveness. So do all these spiritual truths. And again, it's not that forgiveness excuses or condones what someone does, but it frees us from that suffering that goes with that. So then I thought, okay, well, let me go to plan B. I'll make plan B killing myself and I'll go, let me try this weird stuff. And so I began to, um, you know, I couldn't even meditate because I was pacing around so much. So he taught me a walking meditation and uh, began changing my diet from my Texas, you know, chilies and ch cheeseburgers and chalupas to, you know, a plant-based diet and began to exercise and, um, began to feel more of a sense. I got glimpses of what he meant, you know, that again, at the end of a meditation to remind myself, or he would say to remind yourself that the meditation didn't bring that, but rather it was there all along. And that then when I, I could go, the paradox was that I really, when I really thought I had to do well in organic chemistry to, to, to get into medical school so that people would love and respect me and I would love and respect myself, the stresses I brought to that were so intense that I couldn't even read a headline on a newspaper and tell you five minutes later what it said. But the paradox was that the more inwardly defined I was, the higher I could perform. You know, there's an old Zen proverb, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment, chop, carry water. In other words, you do the same actions, but the intention behind them is very different. It shifted from, God, I got to do well so that I can be lovable and be happy to, I've already got that, but I, this is just what I do because this is part of... Um, what brings meaning to my life, that I just like I could take all the meaning out of my life, I could imbue my life with meaning by doing good work. So the way that intersects with health is for me, it was my whole survival. And it's also been shown that the one emotion that's, that's continually, the, the only emotion really that's consistently linked with say heart disease is chronic anger. And the anger often comes from that feeling of frustration that, you know, it's, it's it, you know, you, 
it's kind of the Sisyphus, like pushing the boulder up the hill, like it's rolling back. If you're always looking outside of yourself for your health and your well-being and your self-worth. And so um, there was one study of 148 million Twitter feeds, and they found that those that had the most anger and um, and, uh, and and disrespect, um, those people were actually more likely to get heart disease and die prematurely than looking at their traditional risk factors like you know blood pressure and cholesterol and weight and and uh, and blood sugar and things like that. So the question then becomes, why are people so angry? You know, uh, from my work is always about treating the cause and not just you know treating the symptoms. And if you take it far enough back, I think for many people, the cause of that anger is that frustration that comes from looking in the wrong places. No, I think uh, that's an extraordinary summary of uh, you know the reality of the situation. It's certainly uh, uh, what I've preached. I think I may have mentioned I, I have a new book that's coming out in May called uh, The Neuroscience of Manifestation and How It Changes Everything. But fundamentally, it is this notion that, especially in Western capitalist culture, we have this tendency to look at success, meaning money, power, position, to equate with happiness. And of course, people chase that chimera, and uh, there's nothing there. And uh, the premise of the book really is you need to understand the difference between what you want and what you need, and also to understand the power of your own self-agency. And I think uh, uh, people forget that. I, I think you summarized it very well. Um, Obviously, you're one of the most respected physicians in the world in terms of preventative and lifestyle medicine. Let me ask you a question, though. We were talking about spirituality here, but uh, there are individuals, and uh, as an example, uh, we see a ton of people chasing longevity. But what does that really mean without the spiritual component? You know, we have, of course, David Sinclair, who's a, a well-recognized Harvard longevity expert. We have uh, Brian, uh, we have Brian Johnson, who you're probably aware of, who has this blueprint experiment. But do you have a sense of what's at, uh, there at the end of that path or at the end of that tunnel? Yeah, I just gave a, a talk a few days ago at the Buck Center's uh, first uh, roundtable on, uh, on longevity. Um, I uh, published the first research with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, we got the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres, ends of our chromosomes that regulate aging, how long we live. And she had done some studies with Alyssa Apple that people who smoke or who are under chronic stress, like women who are taking care of kids with autism or people who are sedentary or people who eat junk food, their telomeres got shorter faster. And the telomeres are the ends of our chromosomes that regulate aging. They're kind of like the plastic tips on the end of a shoelace that keep your shoelace from unraveling. They keep our our DNA from unraveling. And as the DNA replicates over years, the telomeres tend to get shorter. And as our telomeres get shorter, our lives get shorter. And the risk of premature death from so many different of the most common chronic diseases goes up proportionate to that. So I had um, lunch with Dr. Blackburn years ago, and I said, you know, if bad things make your telomeres shorter, maybe good things make them longer. And so we did a study, and we put them through our program, and we found our lifestyle medicine program, uh, which is basically a whole foods plant-based diet that's low in fat and sugar, moderate exercise, meditation, and other yoga-based stress management techniques, although they're more than stress management techniques, and uh, psychosocial support groups, or to reduce it to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. And over the last 45 years, we found these same simple lifestyle changes can reverse 
so many of the most common and costly chronic diseases. And we also found for the first time that we could lengthen telomeres, which we published in The Lancet. And we published it there. The Lancet editors, uh, Lancet Oncology, Lancet editors sent out a um, press release worldwide saying, first study showing the lifestyle changes may reverse aging on a cellular level. And I just, you know, turned 70 a few months ago. So we all want to, you know, we all are concerned about aging. But so much of the, the field is, is fear-based. You know, it's like, um, and, and to really understand aging, you first have to understand, you know, uh, life, you know, like, um, and death. Like, and, and I came so close to dying when I was so young, when I was 19, as I mentioned earlier, that I've always had this fascination of, well, what is death? You know, what does it mean? Um, and I, you know, have, from my own experience, know that, that when we die, our bodies die, but who we are lives on and uh, it comes back in different forms. And it's not just a theory to me, it's from my own experience. You know, uh, I think it was Jonas Salk said, I, I don't have faith, I have experience. And so these are just from my experience. And anyone who's done meditation, any kind of spiritual practice long enough begins to have those kinds of experiences that we have a body, but we're not our body. We have a mind, but we're not our mind. But who we are transcends death. And so if you view death, as so many people do, as the ultimate isolating experience, you know, you're going into this box, this coffin that's dark, and you'll be alone and isolated forever. Well, you know, you're going to want to live as long as you can, you know, because that sounds like a good definition of going to hell. But if you view death as the river returning to the ocean, you know, returning to the source, and uh, that, you know, going into the light as opposed to the darkness, then yeah, it's nice to live longer, but it doesn't become quite the um, passion that it might be if you're coming from a place of fear. No, I think that's uh, really true. But so again, getting back to some of these individuals, as you know, they take 150 pills or whatever it is, and uh, uh, certainly they uh, many of them take a plant-based diet. But if do you feel that if you don't have some sort of a mental stabilizing practice, you get the same effect? Well, I think there's a case that can be made for, I mean, my whole life is really works based on uh, eating a healthy diet, a whole foods plant-based diet. It's not just what you're avoiding that's bad for you, but there are hundreds of thousands of protective substances and fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soy products that have anti-cancer, anti-aging, anti-heart disease. You know, they're really beneficial and make you feel better. And, and um, you know, I take some supplements every day as well. Uh, exercise is, I think, good for pretty much everything. Uh, meditation, we've talked about. Uh, support groups, you know, love, I mean, people say, well, what's that love more part of your program? I get the the diet and the exercise, and yeah, even the meditation's a little weird, but, but what was this love more part? And study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed and isolated, which I think is the real pandemic, not only in our culture, but worldwide, are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything in medicine that has that powerful an impact. And it's both directly uh, through mechanisms we don't fully understand. And it also affects our behavior. You know, and in doing these studies over years, I've had a chance to spend a lot of time with a lot of people. And I'd, I'd say, teach me something. You know, why do you smoke? Or why do you overeat or drink too much or work too hard or take so many opioids or um, other drugs or uh, play so many video games or work all the time? These behaviors seem so so uh, maladaptive to me. And they'd say, you don't get it. You don't have a clue, Dean. These behaviors aren't maladaptive. They're very adaptive. They help us deal with our own underlying loneliness and depression and isolation. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, people had an extended family that they 
would see regularly. I grew up in, you know, in Dallas where we, we had an extended family we saw regularly. We had a neighborhood with two or three generations of people who grew up together. We had a, a job that people would go to for 10 years or more where they got to know their coworkers. They had a, a, a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a club or something they went to on a regular basis where they hung out with the same people. And many people today don't have any of those things. And you say, well, you know, so what? That's just modern life. But, you know, trying to get that on Facebook is not the same thing. And a book that my wife and uh, Ann and I wrote, we've been together for 28 years working together, uh, called Undo It. We cited a study that shows the more sp time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Now, why is that? Well, because it's not an authentic intimacy. It look, everybody just posts their, their best self. You know, here I am in front of the Eiffel Tower, here are my beautiful children graduating from school or whatever it is, you know. No one says, here I am, you know, lonely and, you know, thinking about um, drowning my sorrows in, in gin or whatever it is, you know. But when you grow up in a neighborhood or an extended family, people really know you. They know your dark stuff. They know, like me, when I almost committed suicide and they're still there for you. And there's just something very primal about, you know, I see you, I see all of you, not just your best stuff, but your darkness, your demons, your, your, your things that you're struggling with. And because of that, um, it's very um, healing to be um, in a to be fully seen in that way. It's like, oh, you know about that about me. You're still there for me. And so we try to re recreate that in our support groups. We do recreate that often in our support groups. So the support groups are not just about you know you know exchanging recipes and and diet tips. There, it's about again creating a safe environment that people can let down their emotional defenses and talk openly and authentically about what's really going on in their lives without fear that someone's going to reject them or judge them or make fun of them or give them glib advice or whatever. And and it's incredible. It's, um, you know, people, it's a part of the program people often have the most skepticism or even apprehension about. And yet it's the part that's invariably the most meaningful because it's such a primal need that so often goes unfulfilled in our culture. And because it goes unfulfilled, people will say things like, you know, um, I, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or food fills that void or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or alcohol numbs the pain or opioids numb the pain. We have this huge opioid epidemic or video games distract me from my pain or working all the time is a more socially acceptable way of distracting yourself. And so I've learned that providing people with information is important, but it's not usually sufficient to motivate them to make lasting changes in behavior if those behavioral changes are helping them cope with that pain. But when we create a safe environment and you know what goes in our support group stays in the group so there's confidentiality, people are encouraged to talk about what they're really feeling and find that other people are feeling something similar. And while it may not change the, you know, somebody might say, I've got, you know, I may look like the perfect pair, but my kids, you know, on heroin, use an extreme example. And somebody else said, well, God, that must be awful. Or somebody else might say, well, gosh, you know, I had a drug problem or my kids got this other problem. And it doesn't change the fact that kids got a problem, but all that shame and isolation and loneliness and, and despair uh, kind of vanishes. You know, the light really does drive out the darkness, you know, and part of the power of darkness is to um, obscure that we have choices that, you know, that we're not like when I, I mean, the hallmark of depression when I was suicidally depressed is, as you know, as a, as a doctor is helplessness and hopelessness. And that sense comes from things were bad they're always going to be bad. They've, and every any time I ever thought that they weren't going to be bad, I was just fooling myself. And so, being able to create an environment, we find, for example, we have data on over almost twenty thousand people have gone through our program, and depression scores are cut by almost fifty percent. 
And we're not even talking about depression or focusing on depression, but when you can create a safe environment where people can connect so deeply, it's really like shining a light in the darkness and it, uh, and the depression can lift because of that. Well, uh, no, I, I mean, I, you quoted these studies, of course, and uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with the uh, blue zones, but I think that's exactly right. You know, uh, a few hundred years ago when we all lived in villages and everybody knew you from birth to death, you were in an uh, intergenerational family, and you're right. I mean, people accepted you, the good, the bad, and thought you were okay, and you didn't have this constant statement saying, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And what's horrible uh, is, you know, we, as you mentioned, Facebook, we have these people, and there's so many of them, young people who want to be, quote, unquote, influencers, but so many influencers are living a complete lie because they're trying to create a projection of perfection with all of these filters and these different things, which then sadly influences so many young people to try to imitate that and then uh, feel they can never compete and they're being judged and then uh, they get depressed. Yeah, well, I think, you know, compassion is at the root of healing. And compassion, again, comes from that transcendent vision, you know, whether you get it through meditation or psychedelics or through other spiritual practices or just, you know, through the power of uh, thinking. Uh, that sense of compassion and forgiveness um, are really what free us from that sense of isolation and suffering. And to realize, again, it's, you know, in spirituality, you talk about you realize something. It's not like you get it. It's like, oh, it's always been there. You realize that we already are interconnected, that, again, it doesn't... I mean, there's so many things going on in the world, in the Middle East, you know, and in the Ukraine and so on, where people can come up with all kinds of reasons for doing bad things to other people. Um, uh, the, but the first step in doing something bad to someone else is to view them as the other, as they're somehow fundamentally different from you in whatever way you define that. And once they're different from you, then you can do bad things to them because they're not you and justify doing bad things. But then, you know, as Gandhi once said, you know, an eye for an eye and pretty soon the whole world is blind. It just creates those cycles of violence that, that never seem to stop. But the heroes that I have, the people like the Gandhis or, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela, when he was released from prison after 16 years of being in jail, he said, do you hate your jailers? He said, well, you know, they took away the best years of my life. I didn't get to watch my kids grow up. But if I hate my jailers, I'm still in prison in my heart. And so to me, what I call the conspiracy of love that, that you and I are both and so many people are on is to help people use the experience of suffering as a doorway for transforming our lives for the better, to, to get to those places that really are free. Because change is hard, let's face it. But if you're hurting bad enough, then the idea of change becomes more appealing. It's like, wow, I don't know, how could I forgive this person? They were so mean to me, you know, they did, they did or even worse, they did atrocities or terrible things. But... For, to forgive somebody doesn't condone or excuse what they did. It frees us from the suffering. It's like that old saying, you know, when you point your finger at someone, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. If I, you know, James Baldwin famously said, when I, if I hate somebody, then it's like, it's, it's toxic to my heart. You know, it's, um, it's the most selfish thing we can do in many ways is to be uh, forgiving and unselfish because that's what frees us from our sense of isolation and from our, our sense of suffering and ultimately from getting sick and dying prematurely. No, I, I, I think that's uh, exactly right. Let me, uh, maybe you can tell us sort of what you're working on now or sort of the latest findings or the most recently published paper that further uh, supports what we're talking about. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a clinical professor of medicine at UCSF, and I'm also the founder and president of the 
nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute, and we've been doing these studies for now 46, 47 years. Um, but having seen what a powerful difference, I thought when we published our papers showing that these same lifestyle changes could reverse so many different, uh, the most common and costly chronic diseases. We were the first to prove, for example, that heart disease could be reversed, and later early stage prostate cancer in many cases, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Um, I thought when we published our papers, for example, on reversing heart disease in JAMA and The Lancet and other top-tier peer-reviewed journals, that would change medical practice. And to some degree it did, but not nearly as much as I had hoped. And then I realized that what we really need to do is change reimbursement. You know, that if you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and you know, ultimately even medical education. So we went insurance company by insurance company and a few began to cover the program, but it's hard to get people in the insurance world to do something innovative. It tends to select for people who like things pretty much as they are. So I thought, well, if we could get Medicare to pay for this, then that would really be a game changer because if Medicare covers it, most people over 65 have Medicare and most insurance companies kind of cover what Medicare covers. I had no idea it would be so hard. Uh, it took 16 years and we had the support of Bill Clinton when he was president and Newt Gingrich when he was Speaker of the House. We had Charlie Burton, you know, Charlie uh, Rangel, a very liberal uh, Democratic uh, a member of the House, and Dan Burton, a very conservative member of the House. You know, people all came together around this. It was kind of nice in the context of what we've been talking about, about finding common goals that can really bring people together despite the uh, hyperpolarization we're finding in our political environment these days. But it still took 16 years, but they did it. They created a new benefit category to cover our program in 2010. And then we began training hospitals and clinics and physician groups on how to do this program. And it worked. We we're getting you know bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, better adherence. But um, it was limited to people who were within driving distance of one of the hospitals or clinics or doctor's offices we trained. And so three years ago, if anything good came out of COVID, it was learning that we could do it as well by Zoom, like you and I are talking, or equivalent, as um, as in real life. In, 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 I mean, not real life, but in, in person. And um, and then three years ago, Medicare agreed to cover our program when we did it by Zoom. And that was another game changer because now we could reach people anywhere that they live. They didn't have to live near a hospital or clinic. And even people that live near a hospital or clinic often couldn't get off work or pay for parking or didn't want to be exposed to COVID or whatever. So now you can do it in the privacy of your own home and Medicare will still cover it. So you can live in a rural area or a food desert or anywhere and have it available to you. So a few months ago, my wife and I decided to create a, a company called Ornish Lifestyle Medicine to, that we're bootstrapping to make it available. And Blue Shield now is covering it, Aetna's covering it worldwide. And Blue Shield actually just um, set out a press release um, uh, um, Thursday of last week that they're going to be not only covering the program, but sending mailings to their um, patients who have heart disease and encouraging them to sign up for it. So now we can really make it available to a much larger group of people. The other thing that we're doing is we've been doing a the first randomized trial to see whether these same lifestyle changes may slow, stop, or even perhaps reverse the progression of men and women who have early stage Alzheimer's disease. My mom died of it. All of her siblings did. I have one of the APOE4 genes for it. So I have a personal interest in this. And, you know, I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very reminiscent of, to where we were with heart disease 46 years ago. Back then, it was thought once you had heart disease, the best you could do was to slow down the rate at which you got worse, much as how you, most people view Alzheimer's today. You know, there are only two drugs that have been approved to treat Alzheimer's in the last 20 years, and billions and billions of dollars have been spent. One drug, aducanumab, probably never should have been approved three years ago. There's a lot of controversy around that. And the more recent drug was approved in May of this year uh, called lecanemab, a cousin of that drug. 
And it slows down the rate of getting worse by about 27%, but primarily only in men. And it has, you know, it's very expensive. It's the drug itself is $26,500 per person per year. And um, it's scheduled to be like a hundred billion dollar a year drug. And it has side effects and, you know, 10% or 15% of people with like bleeding into your brain and little things like that. <laughs> and it just pulls down a little bit to get worse. Yeah, I wouldn't call that a little thing. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the side effects of changing lifestyle are only, sure. you know, good ones, you know. Yep. So we'll be publishing that paper soon. Uh, and uh, I'm encouraged by what we're finding. Can't really talk about it more than that. But, um, you know, when you lose your memories, you lose everything. And so much of this, you know, only exacerbates it because if you're told, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones or Ms. Smith, you've got Alzheimer's. At best, we can slow it down a little bit. It's only going to get worse. Get your affairs in order. If there's anything you ever wanted to do, now's a good time to do it. Um, and, you know, when you lose your memories, you lose everything. And so it's such devastating news that it's almost like the brain begins to shut down as an adaptive response, which makes it in some ways self-fulfilling. But the reason why I spent so much of my career uh, doing these research studies is that, you know, everything we've done at the time was thought impossible, uh, just about. And, you know, being able to show, for example, that heart disease could be reversed um, can give millions of people at this point new hope and new choices. You know, doing good work, publishing it in first-tier journals with leading collaborators can redefine what's possible. And by doing so, can give uh, many people new hope and new choices in ways that, again, bring that sense of meaning back into my life that we talked about earlier. Let me ask a question. Uh, uh, are there any studies uh, either in uh, more primitive cultures, uh, which actually may mean more advanced in many ways, uh, cultures that actually live a plant-based diet, exercise, uh, that demonstrate that their incidence of Alzheimer's is much less than or sort of the typical Western population? Well, it's harder to see that in so-called primitive cultures because their lifespan is so much shorter that they don't live long enough to get Alzheimer's. Um, but I think, you know, Dan, Dan Buettner is a good friend who did the Blue Zones, and he's certainly finding that dementia is lower in people who have healthier diets, who exercise, who meditate, who um, live in communities, strong sense of communities. So, you know, we know what's good for your heart is good for your brain. The, the um, Undo It book that uh, my wife and I wrote, um, here's a copy of one, just happen to have. Um, I uh, have that book. <laughs> puts forth a unifying theory, which is why is it with all this interest in personalized medicine that these same lifestyle changes can reverse so many different diseases? Uh, Alzheimer's, I mean, uh, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, early stage prostate cancer, et cetera. And the reason is, is that they're not so different. They all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like uh, chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, and telomeres, and gene expression, and angiogenesis, and immune function, overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, et cetera. And each of these mechanisms, in turn, is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And that's why when you change your lifestyle and studies for like in the physicians and the Harvard Physicians and Nurses Health Study and over 100,000 doctors and nurses, these same lifestyle changes lower the rate of so many different diseases, including all-cause mortality. Because again, they're all, they all share these different biological mechanisms, and they're much more dynamic than we had once realized. And that's part of why we're able to motivate people to, to make such sustainable lifestyle changes, because they feel so much better. You know, when people who have heart disease and chest pain or angina go on our program, you know, 91% of the uh, time they have no angina a few weeks later, their chest pain is gone. 
So for someone who can't, you know, walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work without getting chest pain, and within a few weeks they can do all those things, then they it takes it from fear of dying to joy of living. It's not, you know, normally say, you know, put that cigarette down, you're gonna get lung cancer, put that cheeseburger down, you're gonna get a heart attack. And fear is not really a sustainable motivator. I mean, in the short run, it's a great motivator. You know, when someone's had a heart attack, they'll do pretty much anything anyone says for like, you know, a few weeks or a month or two at the most. Then they start to go back to their old patterns because we all know we're gonna die, but we don't think about it most of the time because it's too scary. And so efforts to try to motivate people to make sustainable changes out of fear of dying generally don't work that well. And the paradox is that when you change a lot of things in your lifestyle at the same time, you feel so much better so quickly. Your chest pain, for example, goes away. Your brain gets more blood. You think more clearly. You have more energy. You need less sleep. You can grow so many new brain neurons through a process called neurogenesis. As you know, your brain can get measurably bigger in just a, a month or two. And particularly the parts of your brain you want to get bigger, like your hippocampus that controls memory. Your skin gets more blood, so you look younger. You know, I'm I'm 96. I think I look. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> your uh, your heart gets more blood. You can reverse heart disease. Your sexual organs get more blood, and the same way that Viagra works. And so, for many people, these are choices worth making, not just to live longer, but to live better. And that's ultimately what makes it sustainable. Well, speaking of sustainability, though, I I mean, again, we just look out over the spectrum, and there are two things that uh, I've observed. One is uh, we have a lot of angry people. Uh, and we've created this sort of uh, divisiveness uh, where, again, you're talking about a zero-sum game. It's very similar. There's no compromise. Either I win and, and you lose, uh, and that's the way it is. And clearly, that's not healthy on any level. But also, uh, the information that uh, you, you were just talking about and that uh, a plethora of studies demonstrate Yet still, we have a large swath of the population that aren't there yet. And, you know, one of the things I've always talked about is, you know, if you had the magic bullet, it would be behavior change. But it's still very much a challenge for many people. Well, it's a challenge because they're getting misinformation. You know, they're, they have these false choices. Like, am I going to live longer or is it just going to seem longer, you know? Uh, the only way you get to live to be 100 is by not doing all the things that would make you want to live to be 100 and all those kind of false choices. But it's not true. You know, you can enjoy life so much more fully when you're feeling good, you know, when you're able to do things that you couldn't do before. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of darkness in the world now. I think the darkness and the light are both rising. And again, part of the power of darkness is to obscure that we even have a choice. And, you know, people think, oh, look what they they did. And, you know, and like we don't, have any uh, choice, but when we realize we actually have so many more degrees of freedom in how we react to something, that we don't necessarily have to be stuck in old patterns. And again, the pain is the the teacher. You know, I was trained like you were in our medical training to kill pain. You know, to numb it, to bypass it, to whatever, get rid of it. But the pain is the 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 messenger. It's saying, hey, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. Um, and again, because change is hard. My teacher, the Swami Satchidananda, used to say, look, here, I'm going to give you this really big hot pot and you hold on to it. And of course, you know, you let go. It's too hot. If something's painful enough, then you let go of it. You begin to look for other, like, there's got to be a better way, you know. Uh, suffering can be a doorway for real transformation. If there's someone there who can guide you during your suffering, like it was for me when I was so suicidally depressed, you know, that, you know, if, if, if all we are as doctors, let's say, as physicians, is technicians, then we're going to get replaced. It's already happening by artificial intelligence or AI. 
you know, they can do technical things better than we can, like reading, you know, biopsies or, or radiology, uh, you know, um, uh, scans or things like that. But, you know, we are also healers. You know, we have the ability to, yes, the technology is important, but that's where it begins. It's not where it ends. You know, when someone has a heart attack, I, I remember I was uh, running at the Beta Breakers race many years ago, and around mile four, I was looking for an excuse to slow down, and there was a guy lying face down on the pavement. Uh, I thought, that's a good excuse. <laughs> so I hit CPR, and another guy came by and defibrillated, you know, shocked his heart and got him running. I mean, got him uh, his heart running, working again, and ended up having emergency bypass surgery. It saved his life. And then we met after that. Because, you know, again, when I saw him face down, I didn't talk to him about meditating or eating broccoli. You know, drugs and surgery, when used properly, can be life-saving. We've all benefited from that. But to me, that's the beginning, not the end. Then we say, how did you get in this situation? What can you do to get out of it? You know, um, when someone is, uh, and, and learning how we have so many more choices and degrees of freedom than we had thought, just because somebody acts a certain way to us, do I want to react to that person in the way that I normally do, which creates suffering for all of us? Or can I take a different approach? Can I, you know, be more loving? Can I be more compassionate? Can I be more forgiving? Again, not because I'm weak, but out of from a place of strength, not from a place of condoning what they're doing, but as a way of freeing myself from that and giving, in a way, freeing both of us from that. I mean, look what's going on in the Middle East now. It's horrible. And every side can justify what they're doing. But where does that lead? You know, this has been going on. This cycle of violence just keeps going on and keeps escalating. And um, this idea that somehow talking about peace is weak or is going to, you know, give uh, make it make us less safe. Um, you know, it's easy for me to say being here, and so I, I apologize to anyone who may be offended by what I'm saying. But you know, we need when we're suffering, we need to look to say, do we have other choices besides the familiar ones that seem only to exacerbate what we're where we are. No, I think that's uh, uh, exactly right. Well, I think the other problem, of course, is that we have a medical system that's focused on illness, not wellness. Now, uh, certainly, I think that's changing uh, in many ways because of your own work. But I think we're also fighting against Western capitalist society, which is the pharmacol uh, pharmacological industrial complex or um, uh, you know the fast food industry, or a number of these other entities, whose goal is actually to not make you well. Obviously, if you're well, you don't need medication. Uh, if you're not buying fast food, there's no reason for them to exist. So I think that is a big challenge for many uh, people. And also, if you look uh, at poor people, they live in areas where it's a food desert. And so, you know, you have these stores that sell very expensive uh, processed foods. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I'm always uh, looking for leverage points. Where can I make a difference as one person? And uh, saving money is, I mean, we spent, you know, 86% of the $3.8 trillion we spent last year for healthcare, as you say, is mostly sick care. Um, so how can we change that? Well, most large companies are self-insured. So if you save money, then it goes direct to their bottom line. And so um, we've shown, for example, we, we did one study with um, Mutual of Omaha. It was an eight-site study. Uh, the chief of medicine at Harvard at the time, Alex Leaf, who was my mentor when I was there, uh, chaired our data coordinating center. We had Harvard, Beth Israel, New York, UCSF, and Scripps. We had four community hospitals in Omaha, Des Moines, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, uh, where they told me gravy's a beverage. <laughs> this will be a big change. <laughs> and uh, Broward General Hospital. And 
we found that uh, almost 80% of people who were scheduled to get a stent or a bypass were able to choose our lifestyle medicine program as a direct alternative with their doctor's permission. And so the insurance company found they saved almost $30,000 per patient in the first year. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, which is in West Virginia, Nebraska, and Pennsylvania, and Delaware, um, did a study where they compared our program, people who went through our program, they were not only covering it, but also providing it in 26 sites, um, uh, compared to a control group matched for age and gender and disease severity. They cut their costs in half in the first year and by fourfold in the first year when they looked at patients that they'd spent more than $25,000 on in the prior year. So um, it saves, and it's important to show cost saving the first year because insurance companies know that a third of people change jobs and change insurance companies every year. And they'd say, why should we spend our money for some future benefit if someone else is likely to get it? So we've been able to show that. So that becomes a leverage point. So now large uh, corporations who those cost savings accrue directly to their bottom line. Um, with uh, fast food companies, you know, in 1999, to many of my friends' uh, chagrin, I began consulting with the CEO of McDonald's at the time. And I was able to get them to um, reduce the amount of, uh, to switch from lard to uh, canola oil, you know, to, and they're in making their french fries, to reduce slowly over time the amount of salt. They didn't want to tell people they were doing that because they were afraid that people would think they didn't taste as good. And they, they found they tasted just as good, if not better. I was able to get them put, to put salads on the menu because I said, look, you've got a, a family. And if you've got a person who doesn't eat meat, then there's nothing they can do. So the mother's going to take them someplace else, what they call the veto vote. So by providing salads, it may not be your biggest sellers, but it'll, you know, you'll get more people to come there, you know, and which they did. Now that became a problem because it turned out that the farm bill, the the meat is subsidized, so the burger is 99 cents. The salad was 5.95. So if you're on a fixed income and you're trying to get as many calories for your family for your buck, you, you're going to eat the meat because it's subsidized, even though you know it, that's it's actually causing people to get sick. So I'm always looking for places where I can make a difference, um, and uh, you know, there's uh, there's a lot that I, again, whether the pain is individual or the pain is social. I think you know when you have drugs that cost you know tens of thousands of dollars per year per person to take, it's just not sustainable, and it just kind of strikes at the heart of um, you know especially since we don't have a healthcare for everyone, it just exacerbates those differences to the point where uh, it makes society itself unstable. And so I think when people are beginning to see that the pain points socially as well as individually, that also can lead to transformation. But it takes a lot of effort to do that. No, no, that's exactly right. Well, as we maybe you can summarize, uh, maybe th at least three key points uh, about um, how each of us can improve ourselves and uh, uh, live a more um, helpful, beneficial life uh, that lasts a little bit longer. You know, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. The the un the Undo It book starts with a quote from uh, attributed to Einstein. He said, "If you can't explain it simply." You don't understand it well enough. That's one of the reasons I liked Swami Sachidananda as a teacher. He could just reduce it down to its simple essence. You know, people who don't know anything about something can make it simple out of ignorance, and people who really understand something deeply can make it simple because they've kind of gone through all that complexity to what the real essence is. And to me, the essence of lifestyle medicine is eat well. You know, to the degree you can move towards the plant-based end of the spectrum, uh, low in fat, low in sugar, low in animal protein. Uh, you're going to feel better, look better. You know, lose weight, gain health, all the things people want. Uh, move more, you know, uh, if you can incorporate exercise into your daily life, even better. 
but some combination of aerobic and strength training. Uh, stress less uh, by both uh, avoiding stress when you can, but managing it more effectively in the ways we've been talking about. When you practice you know, stretching, breathing, meditation, and so on, on a regular basis, even a few minutes a day, it can make your fuse longer. People would say things like, you know, I used to have a short fuse and I'd explode easily. Now things don't bother me as much. I can actually accomplish more without getting stressed in the process. And love more, love yourself more, loving yourself more. You know, it's like sometimes I'll say to people, uh, to which organ does your heart pump blood first? And they'll say, I don't know, it's maybe your brain or maybe your, your, you know, your lungs. It turns out it pumps blood to itself first so that it can then pump blood to the rest of the body because the, the heart feeds itself so that it can then feed the rest of the body. Is that selfish or unselfish? Well, it's, it's both, you know? You take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. You know, in the Talmud, they say, if I'm not for myself, who will be? If I'm only for myself, who am I? So you take, you love yourself, you have compassion for your, I mean, I've certainly, I remember when I decided not to kill myself when I was 19, I said, look, I don't know anything. I, I, I need to really understand the way things really are. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, do a lot of stupid stuff in my life. I'm going to have a messy life. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes because I want to, because there's a lot of wisdom that comes from trying things. I said, if it's not going to kill me or, or permanently damage me or hurt anyone else, I'm going to try just about as many different things as I can because, you know, the the more perspectives you can see the world from is kind of like the blind man and the elephant, the, the closer you to get uh, to a picture of the way things are. So I've done a lot of really stupid things in my life, but there's a lot of wisdom that comes from doing that. And I'm sure, you know, both of us as physicians have dealt with people at end of life and they generally don't regret what they did. They generally regret what they didn't do. Exactly. Because you know, if you make a mistake and you do something dumb, there's a lot of wisdom that comes from that. I have more wisdom than most people because I've done so many more stupid things than most people. You know, the many of which I regret, but I still, I'm glad that I did them because I learned things I would never have learned otherwise. But you don't want to kind of go to the end of life and then be filled with regret like what might have been. So the love more comes from having that same kind of compassion for yourself and compassion and forgiveness and, and, uh, and loving altruism for others. Again, not to get a gold star or for good karma or some kind of external reward, but that's what frees us right here and right now from our suffering. Well, and I think that's what makes a life. And uh, uh, so thank you again. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you again uh, in the not-too-distant future. Well, thank you for all the light you're shining in the darkness and for all the great work you're doing. It's so great that you can bring to a, such a prestigious academic center these ideas that give them that much more validity and therefore that much more power. So thank you. Well, you know, I think we're both trying to, uh, in our own uh, ways, uh, improve the world and uh, uh, in some ways help ourselves. Yeah, part of the conspiracy of love, as I put it. <laughs> exactly. Well, take care, my friend. I really appreciate it. You too. All the best. Thank you. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Mm -hmm.